Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you are here on My Turning Point. This week we are joined by British musician, DJ, producer, all-around cool dude, Jonas Blue. We'll talk to him about discovering Ibiza when he was just 11 years old, his fandom for Daft Punk, how his mom turned him on to Tracy Chapman's Fast Car, and much more. Really a pleasure to have him on the show. Hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So there's no right or wrong. It's just kind of, a, you know, for you, what you feel was a pivotal moment mm-hmm. in your life or career that led you to where you are today. One or two. <laughs> you can pick two. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely probably two that are quite the moments for me. So what, what are the two moments that you would pick as, as, you know? So around 11 was the turning point for me. Um, I was, back in, back in the UK, there was a program um, pretty much every week about Ibiza, the island of Ibiza. And, um, you know, being an 11-year-old kid, I was just, oh, my God, what's this? You know, people in nightclubs and people like Cole Cox and Eric Murillo and David Morales, all these kind of classic Ibizan DJs. And I was just like, what is this? Like, I need to be part of this somehow. You know, as an 11-year-old kid, you're like a sponge. You're just like... You know, I'm doing my schoolwork, but I'm kind of like, oh my God, this whole new world is like incredible. So I was watching that at the time. And then I also had my cousin. So back in the UK, we had a style of music called UK Garage. And you would have like, you know, friends would kind of get together on a weekend and go around to someone's house and someone would have a pair of decks there with some speakers and you would go around and you would MC, you would rap. Um, and that was a thing back in the UK when I was around 11 years old. So with watching that program and then one weekend, I had to go and pick up my cousin with my auntie from his friend's house. And, and my cousin was like, why don't you come in and, and, and say hi to everyone? I remember walking into this bedroom. It's so it's clear as day, even even till now. I walked into this bedroom and I saw two CDJ 100s with a DJM 300 all in silver, and he had the speakers on the floor. And I was just like, "That is it. That is that's me done." That was the light bulb moment where I was just like, "This is this is what I'm going to do." Because I was watching that program, I then saw that it was possible because friends of mine were doing it and I have to be involved in this somehow so that was that was a turning point for me in terms of just I've been doing it pretty much every day since since then um so that was a turning point for me so it's funny before we come on to the second turning point moment Mm -hmm. this is interesting to me though so this was for you around 11 years old it's really funny I became friends with Porter Robinson and we've spoken a great deal and it was fascinating to me when talking with him about the fact that you know he didn't grow up on any sort of rock music. He was the first person I met who basically, the music he grew up on was dance music. You know, so it's interesting. Mm. It sounds like for you, it was kind of a similar thing in the sense of maybe you, you know, were exposed to rock music and knew all that. Because like, for example, I know you did the Fast Car remix because you Mm. said it was, you know, your mom's favorite song. But at the same time, it does sound like, you know, dance music, electronic music was just something that was ingrained in you from such a young age. Oh, 100%. Um, I mean, I, funny enough, I, I wasn't actually exposed to, to much or any rock music when I was younger because my parents just weren't into that. Uh, my parents were, were soul heads. So, uh, you know, my dad would have, you know, all the kind of uh, rare groove and um, all the kind of uh, 
just all the old soul stuff, Motown, Stax. Uh, it was it was a lot of that stuff when I was growing up. But for me, the first music that influenced me was dance music, especially UK Garage. Um, because it was just such a thing, especially where I'm from. It was that was the sound back then, and it was it was amazing because you know we created that movement in in in, in London, the UK garage movement, and that had stemmed from. It's a very interesting story, but it stemmed from records from over in the US that they felt were too slow, so the UK guys would speed them up, so it was more of a groove and things like that. So that that was. Um, that was my earliest influences in, into music. And yeah, I, I would say it would be dance music more so. Um, so yeah, so that, that was kind of the first uh, moments for me of, of realising the light bulb moment of exactly what I wanted to do. Um, the second was in 2015. Um, I'd been making music for a very long time, day in, day out. I dropped out of school at 14. Uh, I'd been making music every single day, uh, DJing in local bars and clubs. And in 2015, I went to my first proper Ibiza trip. And um, I'll never forget that year, because I'd been making dance music all throughout the years. And then that year, you had people like Avicii, you had the Swedish House Mafia, you had Kygo. And it was all this kind of from from kind of where uh, you know where EDM started this super hard songs weren't great to be honest it started off in that world to then seeing people like Avicii who were like creating these most beautiful songs anthemic songs over dance music and that essentially it was just great pop songs over over dance music people had finally figured it out in the dance world um and that year for me, 2015, I went on my first proper Ibiza holiday with my friends, being in the crowd. Um, I was actually at a Martin Garrick show. I remember that. I was super drunk. I was on the dance floor with all my friends. And I, I study the music business a lot, so I know all the people behind the scenes and, you know, and I know a lot of people in, in this business. And I was standing there on the dance floor and I was like, I know that guy in the VIP area. I know him, but I was so drunk. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't put two and two together, even though I kind of really, really oddly watched many videos and interviews on this guy. It was Scooter Braun. Okay. But I couldn't put two and two together <laughs> when I was in the crowd. So I said to my friends, well, actually, my friends came up to me and they were like, why are you looking at this guy? And like, he, he, was, he was looking at me because I was looking at him really weird. I was like, because I, I, I know him. And they were like, stop looking at him. I was like, no, 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 I have to go over to him. I have to go over to him, because I know him. And it, it was absolutely packed this night. There was thousands and thousands of people. I was like, I have to go up to him. So he was, I'm, I'm just like a normal clubber on the dance floor, and I've just kind of gone straight up and walked up to the VIP area and literally just held onto the rails. And I'm like, um, I know you. Um, and he's like, do you? I was like, I was like yeah. I said, what's, what's your name? He was like, oh, um, my name's Scooter. And I'm like, oh, dude, yeah, it's you, Scooter Braun. He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, oh, you know, what's your name? I was like, oh, my name's... Because at the time, I wasn't Jonas Blue yet. So I was like, oh, my name's Guy Robin, a producer, blah, 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 songwriter. I said, um, I said, but next year, I'm going to be up there. I'm going to be performing. I had no reason to say that. 
because I wasn't Jonas Blue, I wasn't, I had no idea, but I just had this feeling that I was going to be out there next year. So yeah, I really confidently told Scooter Braun that I was going to be up there next year performing. So happens that I was up there next year performing and then Scooter sent me a tweet and it was just this, it was a very, very inspiring trip. It was just like, wow, and music had changed as well. That was the, that was the kind of pinnacle point as well is that house music had changed from being this kind of really hard because although you know I love all types of dance music essentially I love pop music as well and I love a good song and I love a good song over a great dance but you know it's, it's so I definitely felt like music had changed at that point and I got back from that trip and I'm just like all the stuff I'm working on I'm just going to put this to the side for, for one evening and I've always wanted to do this version of Fast Car for years because I worked in record shops and people would have like bootleg versions where they would speed up the original Tracy Chapman version. So it was really, really fast and really terrible. And then they just put some house beats behind it and thought it was okay. So I remember hearing all those versions throughout the years and I was like, that isn't what needs to be done to this song. You know, at some point I want to do this properly. And then, you know, th that trip happened, meeting Scoots Braun and and uh, music changing and yeah this one evening I was in the studio and I just decided to lay down this demo of Fast Car and I hadn't I, I literally you know I'd worked so hard every day previous to that and you know you're in the studio and you're like this this is the hit this is the hit and on Fast Car I was just like oh this is just something cool like just for my DJ sets. I had no plans for it. And actually, it was it was around the time of ADE, uh, Amsterdam Dance Music Event, and um, we were just going to shop it around and maybe spin in with Take It, or, you know, I had no plans for it. And then all of a sudden, we, we got introduced to, to, to Virgin Records, they took it, and then it just ended up being this global hit. And not only that, it was the start of the streaming revolution. So I got thrown into this world because it was, you know, just at the time when songs, if they were on Spotify, you know, it blew up in Australia first. It was, in, it was number one in Australia um, and then finally fizzled its way back to the UK. Um, but it was a really interesting time and, and a real kind of pinnacle moment in my career. So that, those would be the two moments that were absolute game changers for me. There are so many directions to go in from that. So we're going to go back. <laughs> and do you think if you hadn't been really drunk, you would have told Scooter you were going to be on the stage that night? Or was that, uh, was that, that the alcohol talking? And then, of course, it becomes self-fulfilling prophecy because you say it. Yeah. And then once you say it, I, I do think, yeah, and you, you sort of feel more of a pressure because you've now said it and you feel this need to back it up. Yeah. I mean, I definitely would have gone up to him because I'm, I'm quite a, a kind of, quite a confident person so I definitely would have gone up to him I definitely wouldn't have said I'm going to be up there next year <laughs> absolutely not because I had no reason to because I wasn't doing anything that was essentially going to put me up there but yeah I just yeah I was just so inspired by meeting him and he was the coolest coolest guy um, literally for about half an hour he gave me some time out of his night to just chat to me and uh, yeah a real and then I, I it was funny because I actually met him I can't remember if it was last year. I presented an award to him at the Medem Awards in the south of France, and it was it was crazy. Yeah, you know it's interesting too. The other thing I love about this is, like I said, I was reading an interview you did. I think it was with uh, GQ in the UK. Okay, and you talked about the fact 
that you know Fast Car came about in part because it was a song that your mom loved yeah. so much. And I really like that because, again, I think that it's cool because when you take a song that actually has meaning yeah. versus, like you say, a lot of people would just speed it up, throw some house beats behind it. Did you feel like because you had a personal connection with the song that that manifested or that came through in what you did with it? And maybe that people were responding to that because they could tell that, you know, simply it wasn't like, oh, shit, this would be cool. Yeah. It's like this is something that, you know, has actual significance in my life. So mm. you treat it differently. Yeah. I, I feel there's there's energies that people pick up on for sure. And, uh, you know, I, I spoke to, uh, th- this was a long time after the record that came out. I spoke to my label in the, in the, in the UK and they said, you know, they just... They don't know what it is with with fast car, but there's a magic in there. There is a magic, and we we can't describe what it is, but it's all of those things. It's the fact that yeah, it was my mum's favourite song when I was growing up. It was a song I'd been wanting to do for years. It was the time when music, dance music, had changed, and songs like that were wanting to come through. So it's just like there's there's many different aspects to the reason why that record really hit. But yeah, I mean, people pick up on it for sure. So what did your mom say after she heard it? She loved it. It was a, it was a song that she could now be on the treadmill to, <laughs> and it would it would work because the original was too slow. <laughs> nice. So what other what other songs would you remake or remix for your mom's workout? Um, <laughs> mom's workout. Um, I have no idea. I'd have to I'd have to have a look. Um, well, because that's funny. Because the reason I ask, I'm sure there are other songs that come from childhood yeah. that you could just. And I'm sure it's funny when you were first hearing Fast Car when you were doing the remix. Yeah, you could picture probably being in the car or being wherever. Yeah, 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 for sure. And and your mom like singing along to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there's a couple of songs for sure. I think there's a, there's a balance with doing you know because as as a songwriter, it's absolutely kind of frowned upon from take you know taking someone else's song but it just so happens that that was the first one to get me out and break me through as an artist well it's interesting you say that though because it's funny i think that you know it's like for example i had done something with rod stewart not long ago Mm. i'm a huge fan he started off as a a massive songwriter Mm. very wasn't writing songs for a long time Mm. he wrote a lot of the songs on his last record Mm. but i mean it's funny because i think that there was Maybe for some reason there was a little more stigma in dance music. The only thing I could think of is because, and again, I, I used to do a column for LA Times on dance music in 2000. Yeah. So I've covered this for, you know, millenniums at this point. But it's funny. And the only thing I could think of is maybe it was because of the fact that the songs were being changed up. Mm. But I don't see any difference between, you know, doing a cover. Mm in the rock or pop world, mm. which is a sort of reverence. So it's interesting you say that there's this... Uh, uh, there's definitely a stigma attached in the dance world, for sure. Yeah, it feels almost... Uh, I think people throw it away a bit more in the dance world than, and, and give it less credit. But, you know, there's, there's... You know, you look at Fast Car, you look at Higher Love with Kygo and Whitney, you know, they're special songs. Although they're covers, they're special songs. Well, but it's so interesting. Do you feel like then at a certain point after you, now you've had success as a songwriter that it gives you more freedom to go back and do those ones that are just... Because now people understand, okay, yes, this happened to be the first hit, Yeah. but this isn't who I am as an artist. This is just a song that I fucking love. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to do this. Yeah. But once you have that success, it sort of frees you up where you're like, okay, well, now I've proven myself, so I don't yeah. have to prove anything else. Yeah, you've earned your stripes and... Um yeah, I think that there would be no harm in me going back now and pulling another one from the from the vaults and and trying it out for sure. Um, 
yeah, you just you just go wherever it takes you. But yeah, essentially, you know, when you do a cover like that, especially in the UK, you're usually dead after that. You know, you're a one-hit wonder and you're dead. And you know, I was very lucky that in my years of growing up and learning that I'd been inspired by people like Max Martin, Quincy Jones, all these types of songwriters and, uh, and producers. So it played a huge part in my follow-up records um, after Fast Car. So did you know after Fast Car that, you know, because of, the, like you say, you had studied the business? Mm. So did you know that, okay, it was very important that this next one be something totally different? Uh, no. Um, honestly, I didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing. Um, <laughs> I literally, we, we did Fast Car and I was straight on the road as a DJ. I got an agent. I'm now touring. You know, you got one of the biggest hits worldwide in dance music. Let's go tour. Let's go make some money. Um, and that's essentially what happened. And uh, I did that for a few months. And then, you know, you come, you come to the end of the campaign, you come to the end of the record, it starts dying down. And it's like, you, you, you know, there's an option in your contract to deliver another single. Do you want to fulfill it? And I was like, fuck yeah, I want to fulfill it. I have no idea what I want to fulfill it with, <laughs> but you know, you 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 want to, you know, I want to take that chance. I want to I want to try another record. Um, but you know, I think it would have been very very easy for me to just copy Fast Car or you know a song production wise, change a few things and and do Fast Car again. But we did completely the opposite, and we came with Perfect Strangers, which you know was this kind of brassy horn based dance track Afrobeat dance track which was completely different and an original song with a new artist called JP Cooper and it went on to be a massive hit you know it was, but it was I had no idea I was just it's a really interesting time that because you know it was it, I didn't have a clue what I was doing I was just kind of making music without numbers in mind and what crowds are going to be into. I was just making whatever and hoping for the best, really, which is still kind of what you do now, but yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I really like the candor of you saying, like, I didn't really know what I was doing. It's funny then, because I, I talk about this with artists all the time, right? Mm. There's, there's moments, like, as an artist, right, you are trying to do your best work. Yeah. But as an artist, you can't do your best work because if you do, then what do you have left to shoot for? Sir, so you're always trying to do better. But yeah. what'll happen is you, you find these moments where you feel like you're getting closer to who you want to be as you develop as an artist. Close. So for you, was it Perfect Stranger? Were there moments over the last couple of years where you now see, okay, this is who, especially because it's interesting. Like I had, we had Mayor Hawthorne on the show and we were talking about this. You know, he started off, he had like one hit. And he didn't even know that he was going to fucking be Mayor Hawthorne. Mm. Basically, someone came to him and said, oh, you should do this. Mm. That's where the name came from. Mm. I think it was actually his like porno name or something. You know, wow. how like you take, you know, Amazing. your first, you know, like the first street you live on. Yeah. And, you know, whatever the town you're from or whatever. Right. And that becomes like your, your stage name, your stage porno yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. That's it. how he came from. Yeah. So this being said, you had no idea who Jonas Blue was going to be. No. Talk about the moments, you know, that you figured out, okay, who you were going to be and, and the sound and, and where you started getting closer to who you wanted Jonas Blue to be as an artist. Um, and sorry, I drank way too much last night, so that was a really long quint yeah, question, no, but I think you um, get it. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's fine. Um, I, I think Perfect Strangers kind of set the way um, in terms of what I was going to write about. Um, which was essentially like happy, carefree love songs. They were never downers. And, and that's, a, that's quite a mad thing because Fast Car was quite a downer of a song. But 
I don't reflect as much as Fast Car was a part of my story. My, I'm not going through those sad times in my life. You know, I'm, I'm DJing in front of thousands of people every week. I'm happy. You know, and I don't, I don't have those stories of, you know, well, I do have the stories of heartbreak, but I don't want to put it in music. I want people to smile when they're on the floor. So I think with Perfect Strangers, that kind of set the way, um, paved the way for that. And then, and then, you know, we had songs like uh, Mama and Rise, and it was just these kind of carefree songs, and it just felt like it it worked. It coincided with stuff that I was playing in the clubs, and it, it was it was lighthearted. It worked, so I think it went from there, um, really. And it was it was kind of from it was from Perfect Strangers, really. It's so interesting when you think of those songs, though, that as a kid, that made you smile. Those happy-go-lucky songs. Yeah. What were those for you? One or two that just come to mind. Like every time you would hear yeah. them. Billy Jean, the drum beat on that. No denying it when it comes in, hooked. Uh, second one for me would be Around the World, Daft Punk. The video, being a kid, I remember watching that. It was, those were the two tracks for me. And, you know, you listen to Billie Jean, it's essentially a, essentially a house song, you know, 4-4. Four, four. It is, but it's funny because I always love the lyrical juxtaposition that exists yeah. between really happy music yeah. and... You know, really, I, it's funny because yeah. you say you don't want to put the heartbreak in songs. Yeah. But I think so often, you know, a lot of the best heartbreak songs are just fucking the happiest songs musically. Yeah. Like the Beatles' Help, for example. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that is essentially what Fast Car was. You had a really sad song with a really happy production and the two marry really well. It's, uh, I, remember, uh, I remember Calvin Harris once saying in an interview that How Deep Is Your Love is like a dance ballad. You know, so you know they do work. I've done them. I had a, I had another song called "By Your Side," which starts off with a kind of real piano ballady intro and then goes into a really heavy dance drop. So, I, you know, I've done it, but I, I just prefer the light-hearted subjects, and you know, it's not that deep. Mm-hmm. So it's funny for you though, as you started doing those and started writing these. Mm. It's interesting. Did you know? Like, it's because look, writing most of the time is subconscious. Yeah. You do something, and then only when you're done with it are you like, oh shit, I didn't even know I was thinking that. So it's funny for you when you started writing Perfect Strangers and then subsequent songs, did you know that it was a very conscious thing to have these lighthearted songs, or was that the stuff that just came out because you were in a good space and then it starts to be like, yeah, it oh, okay. Was, it was the stuff that came out because I was in that space, you know, and it was just like I was listening to a lot of the stuff on the radio. I'm like, fuck, why are these people so fucking sad? Uh, what like why have the best songs got to be about heartbreaking like fuck that like, it's boring boring <laughs> I don't want to sit there and listen to your terrible relationship and work out how my life relates to it you know it's boring I want a happy song and the thing with happy songs the people that what people don't realise and this is I had a great conversation with a songwriter the other day is that People don't want to write happy songs because sometimes they don't sound legit and second of all, they can sound quite cheesy. So there's a balance. And when you find that balance and, and you hit it right in the sweet spot, it's great, you know. But yeah, fuck all that. I can't bother to write sad songs. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Besides that, like you say, so many people are doing it anyway. Yeah. But it is funny, I'm sure for you then, when you're playing these songs live too, you know, and again, so much, it's interesting because, you know, you were in an interesting space as well. And I'll talk about this with like arena bands and stuff, right? Yeah. 
you know, let's say you're freaking Muse yeah. and you put out a record and then it becomes successful and you start off, you're only playing to like a few, you know, you're playing to like a thousand people, right? And now yeah. all of a sudden you're playing to 20,000 people mm. and you want music yeah. that fills the room. Sure. You want music that makes sense mm. to the arena. So I'm sure for you having done Fast Car, right? And then you're now playing to thousands of people because it becomes a worldwide hit. When you start writing music, even if it's subconsciously, because again, at, you know, Artists are not going to change their sound to fit a room, mm. but at the same time, you do think about the fact of like, okay, I'm playing to 10,000 people now, and you want it to be fun. You want it to be a party. Yeah, I mean, my, my first gig as Jonas Blue, I was playing in the Azteca Stadium in Mexico City to 100,000 people. That was my first gig as Jonas Blue with one song, which was Fast Car. So... That's definitely kind of embedded in my mind. And, and the crazy thing is, is that when I go into studios now, it's really interesting that you say it because I go into studios now and at the back of my mind, I'm, uh, I'm always thinking, are people in Brazil going to understand that lyric, that main lyric in the chorus? And it was really interesting because I had a song called Rise and in Japan... It was, it was the breakthrough song for me. That song made me bigger than Drake, Post Malone in Japan. And uh, it was really interesting. It was because people understood the word rise. And it was, you know, multilingual. People understood it everywhere on the planet. And then I had a song called What I Like About You. And hearing people in Japan trying to say what I like about you was really difficult. It was really interesting. So, so those things now play a role when I'm in the studio writing I have to it's not like it has to be able to work but it's always something in the back of my mind along with the thousands of people that are on the dance floor who are going to sing it back to you is it easy enough to sing is it going to stay in your mind you know all these things as much as people say they don't play a role they do and you know when you're a touring musician you want thousands of people to sing those songs back to you you really do it's funny. So for you, do you remember seeing shows early on as a kid or things you saw, whether it was UK Garage, whatever, where you had that experience, that feeling of being in the crowd and singing along? And again, yeah. because what happens is that then it becomes in your subconscious yeah. and you think of the feeling mm. of that sense of community, of that power, yeah. of you know, singing whatever it is. So what were the one or two of those shows or songs for you that you can think of now? So, so madly, the, the the one song that plays a big part in 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 what I do, I did I did a panel last year and talking about this, and no one could quite believe that I said this. But Britney Spears, "Baby One More Time," right? The the great thing about that record is when you hit play, you know what it is. You haven't got to wait five seconds, ten seconds, twenty seconds to know what that record is. As soon as that piano comes in and the "Oh Baby Baby." you're hooked it's in and that played a really really big part of my production of my songs because when you hit play on them and the, this is the mad thing because back in back in those days in the 90s what Max Martin was just trying to do is just trying to get the song instant on radio well for, for these days you're trying to get the song instant when you're added to playlists when people hit that play button you don't want to skip you know we have things called skip rates now you don't want people skipping your song so it's mad that that idea still plays a role today, especially in my songs. As soon as you hit play, you know what the song is of mine. 
and that would definitely be an iconic song from from my youth same with Billie Jean you know when you hit play you know what it is um, but yeah there, there's a couple of those UK garage songs that the choruses when they hit they, you know they're embedded in my mind you know how, how they felt that feeling of being on the dance floor how people moved how people sung it back the amount of syllables that are in that chorus you know loads of stuff that's so funny though, because you talk about the fact that you're a huge pop fan. Yeah. So it's more surprising to me that people were surprised by the answer. And it's funny because, you know, all musicians mm. have such disparate tastes anyway. Yeah. You know? But I think when you're in the dance world and you're saying that a huge influence on your career was Britney Spears' Baby One More Time, <laughs> it's quite a shock, but it's a great record. <laughs> So did people get over the shock or did you get, it's funny, did you get those fans who came up to you then and were like, dude, I fucking love that song too? Yeah, both. Yeah, it was, it was a weird one. People, people were quite shocked. You know, I, met, I have no problem in mentioning that in, you know, in interviews. I'm not trying to be, oh, you know, I'm super cool underground techno <laughs> and I can't mention that. You know, there's, there's reasons why those records were so great and will stand the test of time. So it's funny, let's take it to this weekend. You're playing The Shrine. Yeah. Two nights, have you played there yet? No. I'm looking forward to it. I've, every time I've been here, I've played Exchange or Avalon. Okay. Um, I think there might be one other place. I've played here in the parking lot, actually, with a live band. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've never done uh, The Shrine. I'm very much looking forward to it. Sold it's out a- two nights in a row, I think. So. Nice. Yeah, Mackenzie and I were talking about it beforehand. It's a, it's a unique space. Great. It's, uh, yeah, because you get a... It's funny, because you're used to playing to large crowds. Yeah. But it's, there's just a different energy to it. Because it's six thousand, it's the largest GA place in LA. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So I'll be. It's funny when you. It it has like a rock feel. It's funny for you Mm. when you pick up on an audience or when you see it. Is it something that you kind of adapt to it, or you just have fun with it, or whatever? Like when you, you know, because again, it's it's funny. Like you'll do shows that are, you know, I guess there's some audiences that will be maybe more dance based mm. there will be some that are more pop based mm. but it's funny because it's a dance spot mm. but it has that punk rock energy yeah because it's just a big old fucking pit mm. yeah definitely I think you know a lot of DJs now will prepare their sets you know I for one prepare sets for sure but then you know you've got to be able to have the ability <laughs> to when that prepared set that you think is going to go down really well in your head doesn't quite go down the road you think it's going to go you got to switch it up there on the spot so yeah I'll have a lot of backup stuff as well tonight ready to uh... do you know what the hardest thing is though is, is remembering your own songs to, to play them so especially when you're DJing because it's quite you know no set list you've got to try and remember the songs but yeah especially if you've only got an hour as well which we have so yeah, it's funny are there songs that it's, are there, have there been specific shows like this came up recently with um there was a story that I saw this, but I don't remember who the artist was now, but it's funny. I remember years ago interviewing Alison Moss from The Kills, right? And we were talking about the fact that she's like, oh, I was in a bar. Mm. And she's like, I heard this song. And I was like, wow, this sounds like a really cool song. And it took her a minute and a half into the song to realize that it was her Dead Weather song. Oh, and wow. she's like, oh shit, that's my song. Yeah. So have you had those moments where you forget a song and then you go back and you're like, damn it, I really wanted to play that. Are there ones that stick out to you for whatever? And, and it's interesting yeah. that you say that about sort of forgetting to play your song mm. because I think most artists are such, and I saw an interview you did too where the headline was, I'm a perfectionist. Mm. Guess what? So is every fucking artist that ever lived. Mm. By nature of being a musician, you're a perfectionist. Close. So I think that by nature what happens is, you know, it, I wonder if it almost becomes a little bit of a subconscious thing where you're like, 
Uh, I didn't think about that one because, you know, it's not exactly what you want. It's almost, it's easier to be a fan of other people's music than your own. Yeah, exactly. And I think it, as, a, as a DJ, if you look at the history of a DJ and what a DJ is supposed to do, they were not really there to play their own music. They were there, you know, at holiday resorts for <laughs> people to dance to and, you know, uh, to dance together to. And so... You know that that I come from that kind of world of a DJ that is always trying to please the crowd rather than myself. Um, even the way I make my songs, I, you know, they're made to please crowds. They're not just for me. Um, but yeah, there's been many a time where I've forgotten songs. I, I get messages on my Instagram or Twitter <laughs> afterwards, like, "Why didn't you play that song? We love it." It's like oh, I just didn't feel right. Didn't even remember that I even wrote that song. But yeah, <laughs> it does happen. You're human. Well, it's interesting though that you say you came from that sort of DJ world, and that's yeah. changed so much now yeah. to the idea that you know, I mean, you know, now every D, pretty much every DJ mm. is also writer, producer. Yeah. So for you, was it something that you knew right away though that that you know, you wanted to create your own music as well? That it was very much ingrained in you because again, like you say, you started making music when you were like seven years old. Yeah. Yeah. For me, for me, it was. I, I've had a weird, weird kind of world with being the creator the DJ because you know the DJs that I love people like Larry Levan David Mancuso you know all these all Tony Humphreys all these kind of DJs from back in the day Carl Cox you know they were they were just DJs you know they weren't they weren't creators you know it was a very different type of DJ so you know I, I got heavily into that world but then you know being totally inspired by people like David Guetta and Calvin Harris who are complete creators at the same time so um, yeah it's a, it's a weird one uh, I've always wanted to create but I always understood what the classic role of the DJ was supposed to do as well well it's interesting because I remember a conversation I did with Aoki a couple years ago uh, you know and I've known him for many 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 mm. years and we were talking about it and it's funny because you know even in dance world where there was like a you know, and, and it's funny because in the rock world as well, pop world, doesn't matter what world it is now, you know, there's questions about the validity of the album. Does it still need to be made? Mm. And, you know, certainly that applied also to dance world because, you know, people were releasing stuff so much. But as Aoki was telling me, like, there's a, a you know, there's, there's, a stat, there's like a, a, a pride mm. in doing a full album. So has that been the case for you as well, that it was important to, you know, create a conceptual or like... a, a not conceptual in the sense of like a story arc, yeah. but in a work that, that stands as a full body. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, I did it last year. I did it in November. I released my album, Blue, and it was a great project. It was a lot of fun to do. Do I feel it's 100% necessary these days for dance music artists? I don't feel so at the minute. You know, I feel, I feel a lot more comfortable and feel I'm providing my fans with something by coming out with singles quicker than you know taking a year out and making an album and by then maybe dance music has slightly moved on and the sounds have changed and you know i feel with singles you can always and that's the great thing you can create playlists on on your <laughs> favorite music platforms which essentially create an album anyway but you know there's all i do feel there's always been this stigma with dance music artists that they're never really taken seriously you know You'll 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 always find people the classic singer songwriter you know Sam Smiths, Adele's they're they're always taken more seriously than dance music artists. I always feel that it's always just a bit 
looked down on, especially in the UK. I never feel that like dance music is really given its full props. And you know, we sell just as many records or stream just as many records, if not more, sometimes than these artists. But it's interesting you say that because a lot of the artists that mm. you know will do this stuff, for example, like especially in the pop world now, don't even write their own songs. Yeah. You know, but in dance music. Everybody writes their, you know, at this point, like we talked about, everybody's a creator. Yeah. So it's interesting you say that, because over here I don't feel that that's been the case. Mm. I feel like it used to be the case. Mm. But certainly, and, and do you find then, when you come here now, that it is perceived differently? Yeah, definitely. I, 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 feel, I feel America is still very slow to catch up on things, for sure. You know, uh, I'm, you know as, as it's, it's taken f- over four years for me to really get through here. You know, it takes a long time, but then you know, once you are through, you're taken seriously for sure, and you're you're looked at in a different light. But yeah, I do find as a dance music artist, it's slightly harder, and you're given a bit more of a hard time than the traditional artist. Well, we got to wrap up. So, what do you want to add that I didn't ask you about? Um, do we? Uh, a couple of things. Just other than the fact that we've got some remixes, some big remixes, which is cool because I've always done my singles, um, but you know I'm doing things now which are remixing a couple of the biggest dance records at the minute for the end of the year, and uh, you know something cool, a little bit different, which I've not done before. So yeah, just for people to look out for those, and hopefully another single coming in January. Well, I'm sure that's also exciting for you, though. Mm. To you know, like you say, anytime you do something different, yeah, it. it challenges another part of the brain yeah and it also just feels good as an artist to say okay you know you you want to keep things fresh at all times definitely definitely want to keep things moving all the time and it's funny because we didn't get time to talk about this and i know you got to go but it's interesting you know i'm sure collaborations very much have that feeling for you as well yeah because again when you're working with other artists you get to see how they work you know they see how you work you pick up on their energy yeah and i'm sure that's something that for you also very much keeps things fresh 100 percent. you know working with people recently like tiesto and we did a song called ritual with with rita aura you know it was great i got to delve into different sounds i changed my songwriting technique up for that song and you try different things because you pull in from other artists as well and, and that's what collaborations are all about so lots more of that to come for sure so who's the dream one sean mendez Interesting. You didn't even have to think about it. Yeah, he's up there, for sure. Cool. All right, thanks, dude. Cool. Thank Thank you very much. Hey, this is Steve Balton, and you have been listening to My Turning Point with special guest Jonas Blue. Hope you've enjoyed the show as much as we did. Really fun to have him on here, hear about his influences, all the cool stuff he has coming up. Thanks again for joining us. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.
Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 